Husker Out Loud is a weekly podcast about San Francisco real estate from the Jackson Fuller team, San Francisco Realtors since 2002. Show notes with links are at jacksonfuller.com. Hi, Tom and Doug. Oh, hello, Britton. Hello there. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are? Uh, well, this is Doug Beebe, B-E-E-B-E, since I always have to spell my name to everyone. We're speaking to you from Portland, Oregon. And Tom? Oh, yeah, also in Portland. Uh, <laughs> Tom Cotter. Doug and I have been doing real estate uh, since the early 2000s. I recently passed my state and national exams to become a principal broker. Not sure exactly what I'm going to do with that, but just so you guys know out there, we're very smart. (laughs) Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. And we already knew how smart you are. (laughs) So how long have you two been agents? I started in... 2002, and I believe Tom joined me in 2004. Yes. And how long have you been personal partners in addition to business partners? I think about 300 years. <laughs> <laughs> but it only feels like 15 minutes underwater, right? <laughs> exactly. It's. I think we're celebrating. We either just celebrated our 25th anniversary or that is happening now. The math is a little fuzzy. And we're getting really old. Well, congratulations, guys. Happy 25th, one way or the other. Thank you. So we would love to talk with you today about some of the similarities and differences between our markets here in San Francisco and yours in Portland, because we know we have referred many, many clients to you who are leaving the Bay Area and settling in Portland. And there's obviously some similarities between the cities, but we're also wondering if you have any stories about sort of stupid stuff Californians do when they show up in Oregon because <laughs> we, oh no they're all perfect yeah we love them we can't wait to work with we'd them we'd love to meet more as soon as possible well you know you are our go-to guys for when our friends and clients move to portland dears thank you very much we always will take excellent care of course yeah and in terms of anecdotes it's sort of it's a very different market especially if the california buyer that we're working with has been trying to buy in the Bay Area and then they encounter Portland. Because on the one hand, they wind up being very excited by how much they can get with the same dollar amount. Right. And the other hand, we have lighter seller requirements. So as soon as you get into a transaction and they see the seller's disclosures or you know, we start the buyer's due diligence period. I think California holds sellers to a much higher standard. Oh, interesting. So there's always a bit of education around what's normal here and that we really do have a lot of responsibilities to figure stuff out during their due diligence. So tell tell me more about that. Like, what is a typical, it sounds like you know about some of the differences. What's a typical requirement for California that doesn't exist in Oregon? Our understanding is you guys, the seller is required to do a pre-inspection. Is that accurate? They're not required to, but in our market here in San Francisco, a lot of clients do that with the goal of getting a non-contingent offer so the buyer doesn't conduct any additional inspections during escrow. 
Uh, oh. You know, <laughs> here, here, here you figure out the price and then you start inspecting. Interesting. Yeah. And when we do have some sellers that choose to pre-inspect, those are usually with older homes, homes that have been held by one owner with more you know, chance of deferred maintenance that they're not aware of. Okay. So our advice is to usually do that if you're a personality type that wants to be forewarned about what might come up during an inspection. But the buyers here never accept a seller's inspection and waive their own. They still will pursue their own home inspection. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And I know that that's how it is in most of most of the country. And uh, I didn't know if with um, the competitive nature of your market, if any of our sort of San Francisco corks had made their way to Portland yet. <laughs> well, the corks keep trying and we're trying to squash as many of those as possible. What other San Francisco corks have tried to warm their way into your market? Can you think of any? Yeah. Well, along those lines in our competitive market, we do see more as is language offered as an additional provision. And when we're advising sellers, if we're the listing agent, we explain that unless they've actually waived their inspection contingency, the as is clause doesn't mean what the seller might presume it means. Uh-huh. And for buyers, when they are like, well, shouldn't we be waiving this? We would typically add language that says uh, buyer to accept the property as is accepting EXC, uh, accepting health and safety issues and structural issues. Gotcha. They would still, we'd still want them to do their inspection and have the opportunity to renegotiate or pull the plug if they discover something extreme. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we, we, it's not like every single offer that goes in here is non-contingent, but the majority are. Mm -hmm. If I ask you what a typical three bedroom, two bath condo or single family house costs in Portland, is that something you know off the top of your head? Yeah, Doug can figure that out. And while he looks it up, I'll just add to the difference in Californian expectations from a seller. Okay. So our seller's disclosure is about five pages with 10 questions with follow-up questions, whereas the California disclosure is pretty extensive. And in addition to the five pages, there are two pages that don't have any questions, but... Interesting. We have a lot more questions on a lot fewer pages. <laughs> oh, interesting. Is it very small print? Well, the, there's the statewide real estate transfer disclosure statement that's used throughout the entire state of California. And then our local market has um, the San Francisco seller disclosure. That's five additional pages that has, I would say, a couple hundred more questions or maybe a hundred more questions. Uh-huh. And because we have so many, um, oh, there's so many things here with questions that involve tenants, questions that involve, you know, having to do with unpermitted work. And, you know, there's just, there's a lot with our old housing stock and our local laws and stuff. Right. Interesting. Yeah. For the permits, we don't have that even very well spelled out on the disclosure. It asks if there have been additions or remodels and if so, were they permitted? And if permitted, was the permit approved? But all of those questions include an optional unknown answer that just puts it all back in the buyer's court to figure out. Interesting. Yeah, we always huh. 
coach our sellers that it's in their best interest to answer everything to the best of their knowledge without going into a lot of time and effort into doing research. It's just, what do you know in the moment that you're filling this out? Exactly. And that's what we tell our clients to, to definitely, you know, we always tell people, you know, it might seem counterintuitive to tell about the warts of your home, but when the buyers are looking at it, when they've seen it at the open house and they've fallen in love with it, that's the time to tell them about the warts. It's the honeymoon period. Yeah. The staging's all going away. You're going to be stuck with the house. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So obviously one of the, another major difference between our markets is price. And uh, for a three bedroom, two bath condo and single family home, do you guys know the rough averages of your prices there in Portland? Well, I always refer, because it's so handy, and I do it every week to the Altos research reports. Are, are you familiar? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those are such a great thing. And I happen to have it open in front of me right now. Fancy that. <laughs> so for Portland, currently, the median list price is $575,000 with a price per square foot of $254. Is this like a spring sale? <laughs> it's, it's how it is here. What I find interesting is 30 to 50% of all listings have had a price reduction because our sellers are so pumped up after years of, you know, hand over fist appreciation. They're just, some of them are pretty cocky when they, when they mm-hmm. settle on a list price, but there are price reductions. They're not, on, they're not rare at all. Yeah. I would think emotionally in our market, we saw a recovery basically starting in January of 2013, and then it was a pretty steady, nice, balanced market climbing into 2015. 2015, 16, and into 17 was our most competitive. There were just so many multiple offers. You couldn't price a listing and expect it to sell at that price. It always went for over. The, the, the case Shiller reports always had us number one, two, or three for appreciation as a city. Interesting. Yep. Okay. So sellers that are active now are looking at that experience from their friends and neighbors. And now instead of basing asking prices on data, they're simply saying, this is how much I think it's worth. And they won't, it, it takes them a minute to recognize market forces that, you know, a market value is driven largely by what a buyer is going to pay you. Right. The buyer sets the price is the rule in any market. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. So you are you having much overbidding at this point or is that in 2017 and earlier? Well, just last weekend, I wrote a great overlist price offer for a young man um, and five, six offers. And we weren't even offered to go into backup. And we were over list. Wow. And this was oddly it, a very desirable neighborhood without a lot of inventory. Uh, asking price was six seventy five. Yeah, I'm sure it went over over seven pretty quick. But our, the most competitive market for us is below five, and especially b- below four. Anything that's standing and reasonable that's not in a really sketchy location will generate multiple offers at that price point. Oh, you get multiples at the asking price. 
not no, over? No, I'm sorry. It, that will, if you're asking, if you have a, a three-bedroom, two-bath house at 375, you'll get multiple offers and it will probably sell in the into the fours. Gotcha. But we do see multiple offers that don't go over asking. So it is, it can be difficult to predict. That's the $64,000 question in both of our markets, <laughs> apparently. What's also funny here is we have so many people in the design industry with Nike, Adidas, America, Under Armour, all these people want to live in a magazine. So anything that's sort of stylish will just get bid beyond an appraiser's ability sometime. Right. That's never fun. Do you have a lot of cash in your market or is it typically financed? I'd say 30% cash. Sometimes it's kids have their, their parents given money out of their trust fund early or something. Um, often it's people have sold in the Bay Area, other parts of the country and are retiring here. Yeah, for our business, we get most of our cash buyers are more active in other markets. So they're coming from San Francisco, they're coming from LA, they're coming from New York. And oddly enough, they're coming from Eugene, Oregon. Really? To just buy to buy a place in the city. Pied a terre, which are probably some of our highest end clients. <laughs> they live two hours away. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So we're talking about people coming in from other markets and paying cash and sometimes overbidding. Has that led to any fights about just housing in general? Like, or is Portland fighting gentrification? Is Portland fighting new construction? Any of that like we're having here? Yes, it's a three ring circus. The latest thing statewide, they're suggesting getting rid of single family zoning. Wow. The city of Portland is thinking of getting rid of all single family zoning. The neighborhood associations are losing their minds because we have such a housing crisis of homeless people. Right. And affordability. So we have like in our more modest neighborhoods, two bedroom, one bath house that's priced at two fifty is snapped up with an excellent cash offer, torn down, and a four-bedroom, three-bath house selling at seven goes in. So that's where the neighborhood associations are freaking out. And it's even worse probably in higher-end established streetcar neighborhoods, we call them, because they were laid out in the teens and 20s when Portland was going through an enormous housing and population boom. You know, very established, uniform architectural styles, sidewalks, tree-lined streets, and they buy a house for seven and bulldoze it and put up something for a million and a half. Or put two. Those people really lose their minds because they're so entitled. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so th- if they did away, if the state or the locality did away with single-family zoning and someone tears down a single-family home, would that mean that they would not be allowed to build a new single-family house? They'd have to build multiple units on it? It's still up for debate. And no, they do not. They're not. It's not a requirement. But another funny quirk that they're debating in Portland is limiting the square footage of new construction to try and control the cost. Wow. So that's still being hacked out. Huh. Yeah. The first place that came up was in the ADU craze when everybody wanted an auxiliary dwelling unit. So in order to protect existing neighborhoods and architectural styles, the city came forward to limit how much living square footage they would allow in relationship to lot size and the existing house. Huh. So to, so- to your question about if a single family gets torn down and would a multifamily be required, it's more like now a multifamily would be allowed. 
Oh, I see. Okay. But it's still it's still under negotiation because right. there's been such pushback and controversy about it. So it sounds like NIMBYs are not unique to San Francisco. No. <laughs> I mean, we're a small, walkable, largely walkable city, and we just have so many people on the streets right now. So basically, like, the vibe I'm getting from this conversation is Portland is San Francisco North at the moment. <laughs> it's. I wouldn't say it's that bad. I would say that we're a suburb of Seattle and San Francisco in that as soon as people are allowed to work remotely, they show up and want to buy a house finally. Right. Wow. So like Portland's the bedroom community to Silicon yeah. Valley and Seattle. You fly down to Correct. San Jose once a month for face-to-face. Otherwise, you're working from your, you know. Coffee shop. Yeah. Or, do people do people talk in coffee shops in Portland, or do you walk in during the day and it's eerily quiet? Well, it's when they have a bunch of kids. Those are the worst. <laughs> no, it, what what are these things you speak of? <laughs> <laughs> it is eerily quiet. Everybody's got their screen in front of them and their refill cup. And I don't know if it's the Great American Novel or Penny Stocks or what. It's the next killer app, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clearly, they hope. So how long have you guys lived in Portland? We both got here independently of each other in 92. Yeah. Okay. So you've been there a long time. This this should be interesting because one of the the perennial conversations we have here in San Francisco, it's changing so much and it's not like it was. And, but of course, almost no one is a native here. And like, I've been here for 19 years and it's changed a whole lot, but I know it was different 19 years before I arrived. Yeah. Have you guys seen a ton of changes in Portland or is it kind of the same, kind of different? What do you think? I think the fabric of the city has improved quite a bit with new construction and infill. A lot of parking lots are gone. There's housing and shops. The traffic has gotten much worse because we don't have a bunch of freeways going hither and yon. We've got one north-south and then we've got one that goes to the western suburbs where things like Nike and Intel are located. So traffic during commute hours is pretty hellish. It's just be patient. Um, And the streets are sort of deteriorating in that a lot of the resources have gone to other immediate needs. Right. And neighborhoods have very much been shifting uh, as the population has grown. So like we've seen tremendous impacts on neighborhoods that used to be predominantly of color, residents, working class, working class and working artists. Portland used to be very supportive of young people being able to live their lives, make their T-shirts, whatever. Well, it was because of the affordability. And that has sort of changed. And there's a lot of frustration, both in communities of color, primarily the African-American communities and the artist communities, trying to figure out, like, where can I put on my one woman play or my studio space just became a condominium. So now what? Right. That's so similar to what we're hearing here and what we're experiencing here. Our Matt and I did a podcast a few weeks ago about basically the racist past of San Fran, the racist past and present of San Francisco. And our African American population has dwindled to, I think it's down to 4%. It's just, it's a, I don't, it's a travesty. But gentrification has, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Um, Absolutely. And it's happening to any city that's had a renaissance and it's happened coast to coast in this country. It has. It definitely has. And I think, I mean, obviously the coastal cities 
attract the young dreamers who come in and get their foot in the door and, you know, things. And But the only constant is change, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> so for people who are listening to this, who are thinking, gosh, I'm sick of the high cost of living in the Bay Area and traffic is horrible there, but it's worse here, meaning San Francisco. Do you have any advice for those folks who are considering um, exploring your area? Absolutely. Give us a call. <laughs> and how would they do that, Tom? 503-260-7876. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Everyportlandhome.com. Everyportlandhome.com. There you go. And I, I'll add to that more seriously. Uh, some of the clients that we have shared get here with a sense of urgency and then they are really experiencing Portland as a lot of different neighborhoods. So anyone who's seriously considering it, I would encourage an exploratory trip so that they can really see what it means to live in Southwest versus Southeast or North versus Northwest. Does the neighborhood have sidewalks? Where are you going to walk the dog? Where's the school located? What are the people walking by the coffee shop? What do they look like? Just that sort of thing. Yeah. So how, how San Francisco is 49 square miles roughly or roughly seven by seven. Do you know roughly how big geographically Portland is? That's a great question that I'll get back to you on. (laughs) And and while we're at it, playing, you know, uh, Stump, Tom, and Doug here, (laughs) how many neighborhoods roughly does Portland have? Just like, you know, guessing or like, would you say? And of course, you know, what's a neighborhood and how many is another story, but just back of the pants. Yeah. So Portland is divided by the Willamette River into east side and west side. And then we further identify areas dividing it north and south by Burnside, which is a major boulevard running east-west. And the different quadrants, including North Portland, which is established because the Willamette River takes a bend. So we have a whole swath of you know land that needs to be accounted for that doesn't qualify as northeast. In each of these quadrants, you're probably going to find anywhere from five to 12 very distinct micro neighborhoods, if that makes sense. And now there's also going to be a new, they're talking about a new quadrant, or I guess now we're up to sextiles uh, of South Portland, where they're trying to establish a very Vancouver, BC kind of vibe with taller, skinnier condominium and residential towers. But it's another place where because we're following the river, there's a bend and this plot of land that no longer is accounted for. The addresses there all begin with zero, which the fire department finds very confusing. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and the postal service. I'd say there's over not Not to mention your self-esteem. I mean, come on, folks. You're a well, one. <laughs> <laughs> So what's the hottest neighborhood in Portland right now? Or is there one? Inner East Side. It depends where you work and what you value. Inner East Side. (laughs) Is one of them. Those Nike people love the West Hills with the distant views of the Coast Range. Because there's a lot of mid-century housing over there. Oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a hot area. Hillsdale, Bridal Mile are two neighborhoods with really good size lots, greater than the typical inner city 50 by 100 lots. Uh, 
and really excellent schools, according to our family clients. So you got a lot of families looking in those inner West Side neighborhoods. So did I just hear correctly that like an inner area lot is about 5,000 square feet, 50 by 100 is the typical lot size there? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so big. you guys come up here and you're like, woo, elbow room, I don't have to wear clothes anymore. <laughs> like, could you show, show us the houses that aren't on a farm? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's going to maintain this? That's exactly. why, <laughs> Thank you. That's why everybody had chickens a few years ago, but the coyotes and raccoons t- have taken care of most of them by now. Yeah. Oh, poor chickens. One, once your child sees a chicken carcass in the morning after a raccoon's had its way with it, that kind of ends the urban farmer notion. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Too gruesome? Too real? No, it's, it's, it's the circle of life. It is. <laughs> so what else do we need to know about Portland or have we covered it? Well, the food's amazing. I mean, Tom and I travel to Europe on a regular basis. And I think any cuisine is probably done as well here or better than any place else on the planet. Mm-hmm. I love seeing your pictures of you on the boats in Venice. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty fun. What's the, your favorite, what's your favorite Portland restaurant? Favorite Portland restaurant. Uh, we love Noble Rot, which is on the fourth floor. Oh, that's Leather's place, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's fantastic. I still haven't been there. What kind of food? It's whatever leather wants to cook. It's very, (laughs) it's very local. And I would say somewhat inspired largely by his sense of humor. But what's neat about it, it's on the fourth floor of a new construction building that has a lead platinum rating because all of their heating, cooling is geothermal. They've got their own spring water. So they're not even on Portland public water. And their eco-roof is actually an organic farm. So the menu is largely driven by what they're growing at any given time. I feel like I'm listening to an episode of Portlandia. <laughs> What's the name of the building? The name of the building? Yeah, or address. I'm totally It's fascinated. 1111 East Burnside, I believe. 1111 East Burnside. Uh, and it does have sort of a funny name. Oh, the name of the building is Rocket. Yeah. Well, that's all. I have to check that out next time I'm up there. You know, the other great thing about Portland is, and Tom and I do this all the time, you get in the car and an hour later, you're by some of the tallest waterfalls in America. An hour and 20 minutes, you're on top of a mountain skiing. An hour and a half, you're up the coast. It's It's fabulous. Yeah. Now, is is that with or without traffic? (laughs) Without. Well, we're realtors, so we go midday. Yeah, here's about rush hour. (laughs) That's for those other people. Yeah, That's when I, yeah. when we have our West Side clients and they want to meet us at their home at five, it is heartache because all of a sudden we're with all those people. Trying to get across one of our few bridges over the river. Yeah. Oh, the drama. The yeah. drama. And also, everybody should know that our weather is far superior to Seattle. So you don't really want to move there. So how is your weather superior, if I may inquire? We actually get less rain. Less rain, and it's a bit warmer. You guys have had some hot, hot weather these last couple summers, yes? As has the planet in total as well. Yeah. Way way to spread that one out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Global Industrial Complex. 
But wait, you also have snow, right? Occasionally. Yeah. Like, almost. It, it's oddly, it seems like it will have a snow in February. Into March, even. Yeah. And it almost never sticks. And when it rarely, once every seven to 10 years, it might last for a three or five days. And but, when I talked to the old timers, they used to get much more snow back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But yeah. as the climate shifted, it's less frequent. Used to be more snow earlier in the year, like January. Do you remember that year when I came up there for Christmas and like almost every flight into Portland was canceled except mine went? I had no yeah. idea how that happened. <laughs> and, and yeah, there, that was so much snow and it lasted for days. That yeah. was fun. That was a unique holiday extravaganza of snow and ice. Yeah. And, and nobody knows how to drive in that here. So the whole city just shuts down. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and you guys had the best Christmas Eve party that year. I remember that. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs> That, and so, that was that tree we got from that 70s nursery four blocks away, and we dragged it home through the snow. It was very Norman Rockwell. <laughs> so in Manhattan's. <laughs> a typical winter day here will be, you know, wet and cold, maybe upper 40s, low 50s, gray, very kind of cold, humid. What's a, a typical winter day up there? I would say it's very similar. We both have a variation of a Mediterranean climate. You know, it dries out in the summer and we, it gets rainy and cloudy in the winter. Here, um, we don't really have big downpours. It's sort of these misty rains that blow in wave after wave. And then between them, it's sunny. Um, and all, most of the weather comes from the south, southwest from the ocean. I grew up uh, in the Midwest, and I got to tell you what I miss is thunderstorms. Do you guys have thunderstorms? Infrequently. Yeah, very infrequently. Yeah. When, when it thunders, everyone's Same like, what thing. the heck happened? <laughs> no. exactly. But it's fun when that hail precedes the rumbling. It's That is fun. I'm originally from Rhode Island, and it is very different here. I miss lightning bugs. I miss thunderstorms. Well, I'm from Iowa, and I don't miss the opportunity of going outside and dying of heat stroke or freezing <laughs> to death. But do you miss the lightning bugs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pish posh. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really fun. And tell us your URL again. Everyportlandhome.com. All one word. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we will talk to you soon. Have a great day. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And you also. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. Bye. Oscar Out Loud is a weekly podcast about San Francisco real estate from the Jackson Fuller team, San Francisco realtors since 2002. Show notes with links are at jacksonfuller.com. Wow.